Today's parable is a perfect example of why we need to consider context when approaching Scripture. It's dangerous not to. It can lead not only to faulty interpretation, but to tragic real-life consequences. Take Matthew's version of the parable of the wedding banquet and pull it out of its narrative context and its political context and read it as an isolated parable, and you will find one of the strangest and most violent and most off-putting stories of Jesus in the Gospels. Out of context, it's a terrible parable. When reading it out of context, people looking for justification for a violence can find it here. And well-meaning, gentle readers will try to make it tamer than it actually is. They will bend over double to find a non-violent way to read it. But they will fail because it can't be done. Or they will avoid it and turn instead to Luke's version of the great banquet story. That one has no violence. The worst that happened in Luke is some people missed out on a fine banquet. Nobody got tortured and killed. No cities got burned. And no one, due to wearing the wrong outfit, got bound hand and foot and thrown into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. I know if I was told to preach a banquet parable and was given a choice between Matthew 22 and Luke 14, I would not be preaching from today's gospel. But today I don't have a choice. Thanks a lot, narrative lectionary. No, really, thank you. Because I've had to wrestle honestly with this story to preach from this text for the first time ever. Okay, let's review the basic elements of this terrible parable. The king's son, the prince and heir to the throne, we assume, was getting married and that's a big deal. The king sent his servants out with invites to everyone who deserved to be at the royal banquet. Listen, they're being invited to dine with their future king. But every last one of them refused. It tells us in verse 3, So the servants went out again to do a better sell job. Verse 4, they said, Look, there's going to be food galore. Freshly butchered local beef, fattened calves, the works, it'll be great, come. And this time half the invitees laughed in the face of the servants and went back to work on their farm or place of business. And the other half responded in a violent rage, first torturing, then killing the innocent messengers. In retribution, the king marshaled his army and killed all the people who refused his invitation, then burned their city to the ground. And then they went on with their merry banquet. 
inviting everyone who could, they could still find alive, good and bad, Matthew says, verse 10, and they filled the hall. But when the king walked in, he saw one guest not wearing the proper wedding robe, and when confronted, the man had no answer. So the king had him bound hand and foot, outer darkness, weeping, teeth gnashing, and all that. Cool story, huh? This parable is not just terrible, it's unbearable. I'm so glad we had the G-rated version of it shared with the children, the age-appropriate G-rated version. But we're going to dive right in here. So this is the gospel of Matthew. What is the gospel there in that story? Where is the good news? You see what I mean? It's pretty hard to ignore the violence and pretend that this story is only about the wonderful news that all are invited to the great banquet of every race and nation. Nope. Sorry. That's the way Luke tells the story. Matthew clearly has a different agenda in mind in repeating Jesus' story in his gospel. There's some serious judgment going on here. Which brings us again to the context to which we keep circling back in this series. We are working within the widely held scholarly view that the Gospel of Matthew was written first for the community of Jewish Jesus followers in Antioch. Around 70 AD or so, near the time when Caesar's army laid siege and laid waste to their holy city of Jerusalem, leaving the temple in a pile of rubble and killing up to one million Jewish people. So stop and think about that for a minute. You and your family are of a race and religion that the empire is trying to crush, to obliterate. This is the empire that just a few years ago succeeded in destroying every treasured and holy place of your people and massacred great numbers of your own relatives, aunts, uncles, cousins, the very people that you used to look forward to visiting and eating at their tables and sleeping in their homes every time you went to Jerusalem for Passover. They are now dead and the temple doesn't exist. This is the empire that rules Antioch, your hometown. Most of your neighbors are loyal and supportive Roman citizens of this empire. To make matters even worse, the only people in town who you could actually talk to about your trauma and loss and continuing fears are your fellow Jews. And your Jewish community has divided against itself because of the growing movement of those like you who say Jesus was the Messiah. That division has hardened 
on both sides to the point that you are no longer part of a movement within, but a group separated from the synagogue. You are the ones to whom Matthew is writing this gospel of Jesus. Friends, understanding that context makes all the difference. It puts the violence in this parable into some perspective. A story of a king's army killing the enemy and burning their cities is not just a terrible parable. It's lived reality. The Antiochian Christians and their loved ones have been at the sharp end of the king's sword. It's a mistake to read this parable as if Matthew wants all people everywhere and at all times to picture God in heaven as violent and vengeful and bloodthirsty. That might seem like the straightest reading of the story, but we live in relative peace and freedom. We experience faith as a pleasant add-on to life instead of of as central to an identity that might get us killed. Matthew's readers, though, were in a unique position to hear this story and to see the king as a symbol of justice against all those who had a hand in getting Jesus killed and who continue to oppress them today. The church in Antioch could hear this parable and see themselves, finally, as not just a helpless and hapless minority community, but as the unlikely people who have just been invited to the king's table to dine in luxury. The tables have been turned. Those who rejected Jesus or stood in the way of Jesus, or like the Roman Empire, crucified Jesus, have had the tables turned on them, they are missing out on the meal. They have been consigned to the outer darkness. But those who accepted the invitation to the messianic wedding banquet, they are finally safe, secure, and well-fed. This is, in fact, a good news story for people of faith who have experienced oppression, who have been silenced, who have been pushed away from the table, but are now the honored guests at the king's table. Okay, but then what about this unfortunate guest who came to the banquet in the wrong clothes. Well, like other parts of the story, it's a metaphor. It's not meant to teach us how to treat our guests. Again, put yourselves in the shoes of Antiochian Christians. You would have been well aware of the Apostle Paul's life and letters. Paul spent time with you there in Antioch, and Paul's letters came earlier than the compiling of this gospel. 
So by the time you heard this parable for the first time, you already knew about all of Paul's talk about clothing yourselves in Christ. And you would have been quite familiar with the practice of caution and secrecy that Christians in the empire adopted in order to survive. As a threatened community, you always had to be on the lookout for infiltrators, maybe Roman spies, or your own townspeople, people who pretended to be one of you to gather intelligence to be used against you. So you had to develop secret symbols, you know, like the shape of the fish, and other means of telling true disciples from false. So this story tells about a guest who came without proper attire. You'd get this metaphor without having it explained to you. Here is someone only pretending to be on the side of those sitting at the messianic banquet. He's not actually clothed in Christ. And he was found out. And he had no credible answer for himself. And the bouncer threw him out. Rightfully so. You see, we usually read this parable from our place of comfort and security. And as people who tend to see faith as something that's convenient for us, that enhances our social connections, rather than as something that endangers us or turns our lives upside down, when, when we read this story properly, it can still be good news for us all. That is, if we take our faith seriously. It tells us that our trust in Jesus is worth something. It's worth investing in, worth taking risks for, worth taking unpopular stands for, worth even dying for, if it ever came to that. It tells us that the God of justice will fight for us and for others whose lives are threatened. We need not cower in the shadows. We can live in the light of Jesus. And it proclaims the good news, after all, that everyone, everyone who says yes to God's broad invitation is welcome at the banquet when you come in good faith. Thanks be to God. In response, let's read a confession together in unison. It will be on the screens as well as in Voices Together, number 908. It's a prayer written by Jan Richardson expressing our trust in a God who will work with us, even those of us caught in a quagmire of violence or living in a world that is broken and frayed. It's a prayer, both a prayer to God, for God to intervene 
with justice and healing, as well as a statement of confidence that God will do just that. So let's read it in unison, poetically, with an ever-so-slight pause at the end of each line. From all that is broken, let there be beauty. From what is torn, jagged, ripped, frayed, let there be not just mendings, but meetings unimagined. May the God in whom nothing is wasted gather up every scrap, every shred and shard, and make of them new paths, doorways, worlds. Amen.